You're listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. For more teaching and resources, visit LargerStory.com. This is my first time back at Sandy Cove in 40 years. Why do I have this strange feeling as I begin to share that I should be sitting? (laughs) Why is there this thunderous voice of God within me that is urging me to be biblical and to sit? true, of course, as all of you know, that the Apostle Paul said that those who are full of the Lord and armed in all of his armor, having done all stand, <clears throat> an apostolic authority by direct teaching has more, more power than ambiguous, ambiguous, culturally conditioned example. <clears throat> As I mentioned, this is my first time at Sandy Cove in 40 years. Forty summers ago, in the summer of 1952, I was a camper at Sandy Hill Boys Camp. And I was so homesick during those two weeks that I plotted to return home with my parents when they came for the midweek visit. Now, my parents are here with us this week, as is my wife Rachel sitting back there. And uh, one of the camp directors, one of the sadistic camp directors, called my parents and said to them that I think it would be wise if you didn't come for the midweek, for the uh, mid-two-week visit. And you folks may not believe this, but my parents, they seem like very, very nice people. They didn't come. And I'm working that through in therapy now. I trust it'll... But during that second week, I trusted Christ as my Savior at Sandy Hill Boys Camp. And the counselor that, uh, I don't know his name, it's been 40 years, obviously, he was the counselor that all the campers thought was the meanest guy on campus, the meanest guy at camp. And one evening, after an evening meeting, we had a campfire, and uh, that night he led me to Christ. So Bible camps and conferences really mean a great deal to me. Two years after that, when I was 10 years old, my family took a vacation at Greenwood Hills Bible Conference, another Bible conference in Pennsylvania. And there, when I was 10 years old, I met the woman who was now my wife. She was 10 at the time. And um, we couldn't begin dating right away because she was going steady with Carl. But two years later, the Lord intervened and and she broke up with Carl and I moved in to her life. And... uh, For the next number of years, we dated off and on until, at age 21, we got married. I've been a Christian for 40 years, married now for 26, a father for 24 years, and a practicing psychologist for about 22. And during those years, there likely has been one commitment among others that has stood out to me, in my own life, and that's the commitment as a Christian to pretend about nothing. If Christianity is true, it can handle everything that I face in life. 
There's no need to pretend I'm doing well when I'm not. There's no reason, there's no need to pretend that I'm feeling a certain way toward my wife or children or ministry or friends when I'm not. What I want to share with you this week is that when you face life honestly, you have your best chance of knowing God most deeply. Well, you take your Bibles and turn to a verse that will serve as a bit of a theme verse for my comments in the course of this week. Hebrews chapter 11. One of the best known chapters in the Bible. And I want to read just a few verses to set the stage for my comments this morning and to introduce a theme that will last us throughout the week of my opportunities to interact with you. Hebrews chapter 11. And beginning at verse 5, the writer says, By faith Enoch was taken from this life, so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And now notice that the writer, who in this particular chapter narrates a variety of people and uses them as illustrations of faith, For the first of three times, he breaks from the narrative and enunciates a principle. And he says in verse 6, And without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists. What does that mean, do you suppose? It means you can't be an atheist? Or does it mean more than that? Does it mean, perhaps, anyone who comes to God must believe that he exists as he reveals himself, not as we always want him to be, and that he is the rewarder of those who earnestly seek him? That verse has been on my mind since March 17th, 1991. I want to begin my comments by telling you about a family tragedy during which the Lord used this verse, I believe, in a very definite way in my life to start a whole new process. I've been a Christian for 40 years, as I've indicated. But starting about a year and a half ago, the Lord used this verse to begin a far deeper search than I've known before, maybe much shallower than most of you, but a far deeper search than I've known before to to know the Lord. In Jeremiah, the Lord says that you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. I'm not talking about becoming a Christian. I trust all of us in the room are Christians. That means we've all found the Lord as our Savior. But all of us know that there's more to know of Him than we'll ever know. And however far we've moved in our progress towards spiritual maturity, all of us have further to go than we've already come. What does it mean to know the Lord deeply? My thinking began along this line a year and a half ago when on March 3rd, 1991, United Flight 585, flying from Denver, Colorado to Colorado Springs, crashed before it reached the airport. And all 20-some passengers and several crew members were killed instantly in that crash. My only brother was on that plane. He died in March 3, 1991. My wife and I were sitting at the Lord's table on Sunday morning. That was a Sunday. We were sitting at the Lord's table in our home church when an elder tapped me on the shoulder and said, You have an emergency phone call. 
I went to the back room where the phone was sitting and I answered it and it was my father saying that Bill had been in an accident and didn't know the details of it. Rachel and I immediately canceled our plans to go to Dallas that afternoon and drove down to Colorado Springs to the airport, to the airport there and discovered that, um, that all passengers had died, my brother among them. For the next two weeks, we were very busy. It's funny how after a tragedy like that, the busyness absorbs the grief to at least some degree. We were very busy and very troubled, very distressed. Many tears were shed, and tears still are shed. Time doesn't always make it easier. Only the hope of heaven makes it bearable. But two weeks after the crash, on March 17th, I said to my wife during that Sunday afternoon, words that I didn't understand when I said them. I said, honey, I, I have tears inside of me that I have not yet shed. Does that make any sense to any of you? Know what I'm talking about? Things are happening inside that you don't understand. I knew that there was some process going on inside of me that I had very little understanding of. John White, in his excellent book called Changing on the Inside, from my point of view, not a terribly original title, um, has talked about the concept of repentance along the following lines. He suggested this, that you know that the Lord is bringing you to a point of deeper experience with him, more meaningful repentance from yourself and a deeper knowledge of him when you feel the beginnings of an earthquake going on in your soul, when the tremors are unmistakably there, when somehow you're disturbed, you're unsettled. And his, his advice, which I thoroughly endorse, is pay attention to the tremors. Don't hide them beneath louder singing. Don't run from them into Bible memory. Don't avoid them by making deeper commitments, but allow yourself to come before God in the fullness of whatever is going on in your soul. Only by pretending about nothing will we meet the Lord most deeply. Well, I had no comprehension at all as to what those tears were about that had not yet been shed, but I knew I was deeply troubled, didn't know why. Well, that night, March 17th, I couldn't sleep, and I got up out of bed after lying there, tossing and turning for perhaps an hour. I took my Bible, and I went to my little study in our home, and forgive me if this is offensive, I don't intend it to be at all, but as I sat by myself in that study with my Bible, knowing that I was deeply troubled, not knowing what about wanting to cry, the tears wouldn't come. The source of the tears were entirely unclear at that point. The source was unclear. I held my Bible in my lap, and forgive me for this, but I felt enraged at the Bible. You know why? I wasn't answering the questions I wanted answered. Have you noticed that God determines the questions he answers? I wanted certain answers. I found myself saying, I want to know how to manage my life. I want to know what to do so that things will turn out as I want. God, I want to look to your word for biblical principles by which I can order my life, and then I want to find some way to obligate you to honor my obedience by having things happen as I want them to happen. You ever been there? And as I felt that rage, knowing I was wrong, the Bible's the word of a God that loves me. And I'm mad at it. 
Something's wrong with me. And as I sat in my study, the tears began to come. And I suppose I sobbed that night perhaps more heavily than I've ever sobbed before in my life. And the source of the tears became clear. The source was deeper than Bill's death. Not much gets deeper than that. But the source was deeper than Bill's death of my tears that night. And the source basically was this. I came to realize that I did not have the guarantees in life that I wanted. The things that I wanted most desperately to control were the things I least controlled. Does that sentence make sense? Do you all know exactly what to do to restore warmth between you and your spouse when it's missing? You've all read the books, haven't you? I've read Marriage Builder and Men and Women Enjoying the Difference, two books I've written on the topic, and I'm still puzzled. I've been to seminars, I've taught seminars, and I don't know what to do to make things happen the way I want them to happen. Aren't you all confused by life? And if you're asking certain questions requiring God to resolve your confusion, you too will get angry at the scriptures. My wife and I last January were in Chicago at Moody Founders Week, and um, we were sitting up in, the, in our bedroom in the hotel getting ready to go downstairs to some function. And I was, I was ready. <clears throat> and I was sitting on a chair in the hotel, reading something about a guide to Chicago, while my wife was finishing up her touches. And she was looking in the mirror in our bedroom, and she said words that every husband fears to hear. She said, my hair just looks terrible today. <laughs> Gentlemen, what do you do right then? Have you all been there? And you've tried it all, haven't you? Haven't you tried things like, gee, I think it looks great, hon. How's that work? How many of your wives, when you say that, respond by saying, oh, thanks, that really helps. I feel, I just feel so much better. Or sometimes you try something else and you say, you got a point, you know, and, um, <clears throat> and that isn't a vast improvement. Well, I didn't know what to say, and, and I can't find any answers in Scripture to tell you what to do when your wife says her hair doesn't look good. You read Ephesians 5, love your wife, love the church. Well, how do you translate that into that moment in time? You don't know. What I ended up saying was not the best thing, but I said, um, well, it looks okay from the back. <clears throat> To which she responded, well, good then, I'll just walk around backwards all day. <laughs> it wasn't one of, our, one of our finer moments. And all the way from silly things like that to hard things like the death of a brother. And you don't know what to do. How do you live to arrange things the way you want them to be? Had anybody prayed for my brother's safe trip that day, do you suppose? I knew he was flying. I typically pray for the safety of people that I love, that I know are traveling. I likely prayed for him that day. Was my prayer answered? Not as I intended. 
And that night as I became just terribly aware that the things that matter to me in life, being close to my wife as we go downstairs to a conference, thinking about the people I care about and whether my kids are going to love the Lord for the rest of their lives and whether people are going to live or die and all the things that matter to me so much, I began to feel in a way that perhaps I never had before in my life, absolutely out of control. And my prayer to God during that moment on March 17, 1991, at about 2 in the morning was this. I said, Lord, I know you're all that I have but I don't know you well enough for you to be all that I need. Show me yourself. What does it mean to find God, fellow believer? Not a Savior. We've already found Him as our Savior. We know He's the one who died for our sins. We've trusted in Him because our judgment was certain, but He took the price for us. We're now believers. We're accepted in the Beloved. We're going on our way to heaven. We're grateful for that. But now God calls on us to know Him better now and then later to know Him eternally more deeply than we possibly could hear. And as I was asking the Lord, teach me what it means to find you. Show me what it means to know you more deeply. For whatever reason, and I'm not a mystical sort of a guy particularly, maybe I'm getting more that way with the years, but for whatever reason, that night, this text came to my mind and I opened my Bible and turned to it. And I read verse 6, without faith, it's impossible to please God. And the phrase that occurred to me first that drove me to the passage is the next phrase where the writer says, anyone who comes to him, and my thought was, Lord, I'm coming to you because I need you. I don't know how to survive this uncertain, tragic life without knowing you better than I do. Got to know you well. Better than I do now. I know you're all I have. And Lord, I'm aware that there's no plan to follow That'll make my life exactly what I want. There's no communication techniques that always work when you and your wife or husband are having trouble. There's no formula for prayer that keeps everybody safe that you pray for as they fly. There's no magic approach to counseling. No matter how biblical your counselor may be, That'll resolve all your problems. By the way, it's a serious mistake to regard counseling primarily as an effort to get your problem solved. It is wrong, I submit to you, what happens so often in Christian counseling to use God to solve our problems. Rather, we should be using our problems as reason to find God. And when we find God, our problems do not all go away. Those that are rooted in self-centeredness begin to fade, but others take their place. God, I want to know how to find you more deeply than I know you now. Anyone who comes to God, well, God, that's me. I'm coming to you, and it's two in the morning, and I'm sobbing, and I'm desperate, and I must know you better than I do. So show me something in this verse. Are you leading me to this verse for a reason? Help me to understand what it means to come to you so no matter what happens in life, my anchor is deep. And I can survive. And not merely survive, but survive with with, with meaning and with joy. Anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. That's the verse that I want to study with you in the next few minutes. What does it mean? I want you to notice, as we begin to take a look at that verse now, I want you to notice that in chapter 11, 
something I've already mentioned briefly, that the writer interrupts the narrative of recording these heroes of the faith three different times. The first time is in verse 6, the verse that is our theme verse for the morning. The second time begins in verse 13 and goes through verse 16. And the third time, the last time, starts in verse 38 and goes to the end of the chapter. There are three times that the writer interrupts his record of talking about people's lives and saying, here's an illustration of faith. Look at this person. He illustrates faith. Look at her. She illustrates faith. He interrupts this narrative recital three times to enunciate a principle. Now, I noticed that in my study of this text, this entire chapter, obviously. And the thought occurred to me, and you be the judge if this is good hermeneutics or not, the thought occurred to me that perhaps as the writer was carried along sovereignly by the Spirit of God, who did not violate the writer's personality and yet maintained complete control, that perhaps as the writer was under inspiration and mentioned the name of one of the heroes of the faith, that perhaps the name that he mentioned, the person he described, jogged his mind under the Spirit's sovereign control to enunciate a principle. If that's the case, then I would suggest, it occurred to me at least, that the principle that's enunciated in verse 6 may find its illustration in the person mentioned just before. Did you follow my reasoning there? That night I was saying, God, I've got to find you. I've got to know you more deeply than I do, and there's not one person in the room who doesn't have cause to say that. I need to know you better. Some know him far better than I, but no one knows him well enough to handle tomorrow. Lord, do I know you? Do I really know you? Or do I know my wife better than I know you? Do I know my kids, mother and dad, better than I know Christ? Is that really possible, Lord? What does it mean to know you? How do I come to you to find you? Anyone who comes to me must believe that I am and that I reward those who earnestly seek me. God, help me understand that passage. Well, take a look back at the life of the one who was just mentioned. Maybe he serves as an illustration of the principle enunciated in verse 6. Who's the person just before? Obviously, it's Enoch. What do we know about Enoch? Take your Bibles and turn back, and we're going to see three things the Bible reveals about Enoch. There's not much revealed, but look at Genesis chapter 5. And we're going to look now at the life of Enoch for the next few minutes to see if we can come to some understanding of how the little that is recorded of Enoch's life may serve to illustrate the principle that the writer enunciates in our theme verse for the morning. How does Enoch's life illustrate what it means to come to God? and to find him, and to know him more deeply, deeply enough to survive with meaning and joy until we're taken to be with himself. In chapter 5, we have one of those chapters that we tend to read by very, very quickly because of the genealogy, but I want you to notice one thing in chapter 5 that's very, very striking. Look at verse 3, and let me read you a few verses to make my point about Enoch. We're told in verse 3 that when Adam had lived 130 years... He had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. After Seth was born, Adam, what's the next word? Lived. Notice that. After Seth was born, Adam lived 800 years. We're told in verse 8, when Seth had lived 105 years, he became the father of Enosh. And after he became the father of Enosh, Seth lived 807 years. 
And after Enosh, in verse 10, became the father of Kenan, Enosh lived 815 years. And verse 13, after Kenan became the father of Mahalalel, and by the way, little tip here, whenever you're reading the Bible publicly, you come to a name you cannot pronounce, say it quickly with authority, no one knows the difference. <laughs> after Kenan became the father of Mahalalel, Kenan lived 840 years. Verse 16, after Mahalalel became the father of Jared, Mahalalel lived 830 years. Verse 19, after Jared became the father of Enoch, Jared lived. When Enoch, verse 21, had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. But then verse 22, the formula changes. After Enoch, the one who perhaps illustrates Hebrews 11.6, became the father of Methuselah, Enoch. And now the formula changes. Everybody else lived. Enoch walked with God. That's the first thing I noticed about Enoch's life, and I wondered, what's that have to do with Hebrews 11.6? And the question I asked of myself, am I merely living? Or am I walking with God? What does that mean? We use the term so glibly. What does it mean to, to walk with the Lord? Enoch did. Began to ponder that. Began to wonder why the inspired writer changed the phrase from so-and-so lived, so-and-so lived, so-and-so lived, to Enoch walked with God. Is there any significance to that? And if so, what might it be? And how might that significance shed light on the meaning of Hebrews 11.6? That's what I began to wonder a year and a half ago. My mind went in this direction as we observed this first of three points about Enoch's life, which the Bible makes clear. My mind went in this direction. It occurred to me that uh, those who walk with someone, in order to walk with somebody, you must be walking in the same direction as they're walking. Amos, in chapter 3 and verse 3, makes it clear, how can two walk together unless they be agreed, that if I'm going to walk with God, and if he's going to walk with me, that's not the right way to put it, it's me walking with God, but if we're going to walk together, then we must be moving in the same direction. And have you noticed that God never shifts his direction to accommodate mine? That's what it means for God to be sovereign. I'm the one who must do the shifting. What does it mean to walk with God. Could it be that it's time that we as Christians need to take a hard look at our lives beneath the surface of the exterior to see whether in fact we're really walking with God? Why is it, folks, here's a burden on my heart, why is it that there are so, and maybe this is not your experience, it is mine, I wish it weren't, why is it that there are so few older folks that you know really well and you covet their knowledge of Christ. There are some. I'm sure there are many in this room. A few years ago I sat down and I thought, who do I know that's on in years whose life I, I find myself wanting to emulate? Who knows God in a way that I want to hear them talk? And I, I thought of several names of people that I know well enough but I want to hear these folks talk about God. I had a seminar some time ago where I invited five of the six names I came up with to come and address my seminar. Each 
individual over 70 years of age. And my assignment to them was, get up and talk for an hour about God. I don't care what you say. Talk about God. My father was on that list. What does it mean to walk with God? Why are there so few that don't walk with the Lord in a way that makes us look at them and our tongues hang out? Is a time that we need to look beneath the surface and say, yeah, we're looking pretty good. Our lives are blameless to at least some significant degree on the outside. But what's really happening on the inside? One of the most frightening verses in the Bible is Proverbs 22 and verse 5, which says that the purposes of a man's heart are like deep waters. You know what that means? If you were to get in a little rowboat out here, I've not been in this lake, so I don't know, but I suppose that the lake is shallow right at the shore, at least. And if you were to step onto a rowboat in the shallow edge of the lake and to look down, I presume you might be able to see bottom if it's clear enough and if it's not terribly deep, and you could see the bottom of the lake, two feet, three feet down, or yourself out into the middle of the lake, and I presume it's a rather deep one. And when you get to the middle of the lake, 30, 40, 50, 60 feet deep, whatever it is, and then you look down, you can't see bottom. Why? The Bible says that the purposes of a man's heart are like deep waters. We don't always know the reasons why we do things. If we're going to walk with God, then maybe we need to let the Word of God have one of its self-appointed functions, which is to reveal the thoughts and intents of the heart, to function like a two-edged sword, and to cut down to reveal what are the real motivations going on in my soul as I stand behind this pulpit and speak to you. What are the real motivations going on in my soul as after I finish speaking, my wife and I walk over to lunch. What am I really doing? There's a direction to my life at every given moment. Is it walking with God or is my motivation something different? Are you aware that it's terribly possible to be looking good and to have bad motivation beneath the surface? We've been married for 26 years. We met, as I've already said, we were 10 years old, had our first semi-date of sorts at 12 and courted for a number of years and got married at 21. I wonder why we got married. When I was a teenager, I had several problems, some I have no intention of telling anybody about and some that I'd be glad to share with you. Two of my major problems when I was a teenager, one, I had a speech problem. I was a rather severe stutterer. And people tell me these days that I still talk too fast. And if that's been a problem for you so far, the difficulty is you're listening too slow. So if you'll speed it up, we'll have no trouble. But I used to be a rather severe stutterer, and any stutterer will tell you that, um, that he has, and it's usually a he, very few women stutter. It's five to one ratio, male to female, for some reason. And um, any stutterer will tell you that he has a, a letter or two or three that are his particular obstacles, that when he comes to a word, that particular letter, he's terrified. And my two worst letters were L and P. My name is... Larry. One time somebody said, Hi, what's your name? And I said, Jim. <laughs> That's my middle name. So I'm a couple days. They said, Hi, Jim. How you doing? I'm thinking, Who's Jim? What are you talking about? <laughs> my other bad letter is P, and I was raised in Plymouth Meeting, Pennsylvania, among the Plymouth Brethren. One Sunday morning, if you know about the Plymouth Brethren, you know that they meet for the Lord's Supper on a weekly Sunday morning basis, and in our particular group, all the young men are encouraged by a certain age to stand and take part in the Lord's Supper. One Sunday morning when I was 15, which I had discerned was the age, I stood to my feet under the leading of the pressure of the saints and I began to pray. 
And I stuttered my way through that prayer, probably one of the most heretical prayers prayed in the history of the church. I was so nervous that I had the Father on the cross, the Spirit in the grave, and the Son watching the whole thing. It was really, really heresy. And finally, the Spirit of God came through and inspired me to say the word Amen. I said it and sat down and made a vow to myself at age 15 I would never again speak in public as long as I lived. Interesting, isn't it? One of my problems was stuttering. The other problem, there's no polite way to put this, skin blemishes, pimples, and Philly, we call them zits. I don't know what your phrase is. Well, back in our youth group, neither pimples nor stuttering were in. And... Um, they were somewhat difficult years for me, but when I met Rachel at 10 and then began to get to know her at 12 and dated her off and on for the years to follow, I began to realize here was a, here was a real pretty teenage girl that didn't seem to be turned off by some skin blemishes and some speech difficulties. She seemed to want to hang around me. She liked my advances. She liked when I drove several hours to meet her. She liked when I bought her gifts. She got excited to see me. And something inside of me came alive, and I thought, this is the way I like to feel. I think maybe I'll marry her. We call it falling in love. You know what Lewis said one place? You never learn how to love until you fall out of love. We fall in love. Love never becomes a biblical reality until some of that initial excitement, which has such a questionable foundation, begins to disappear, and then you pull out the real resources of what it means to love. Well, we got married at 21, and I wonder why we got married. We stood before the preacher, and we said all the right words. I promise, to, you don't raise your hand, I guess, do you? I promise to love, honor, taking my Boy Scout pledge, I promise to love, honor, and <clears throat> love, honor, and cherish, and do all sorts of neat things till one of us dies, however the phrases go. And um, we said those words to each other 26 years ago. I wonder what we meant. The purpose of a man's heart are like deep waters. Enoch walked with God. His purposes were God's. What was my purpose 26 years ago? I think I was saying something like this. I wouldn't put it in exactly these words, perhaps, and I wasn't aware of it at the time, but I think I was saying something like, Lord, I, I, I like the way I feel when I'm around this woman. I've hurt in a lot of ways. Sometimes I've been terribly embarrassed by my skin blemishes and I've been in situations of humiliation because of my stuttering. My self-esteem needs some shoring up and I can think of nothing that matters more than my self-esteem. By the way, that's a root problem in the modern approach to Christian counseling. That self-esteem is the central issue. It's never the central issue. It's an issue. It's an important issue. But it's never the central issue. And the whole approach to resolving addictive disorders by promoting self-esteem ultimately is built on unbiblical foundations. But I was concerned about my self-esteem, my self-image, my lack of appreciation for my value and worth. But when I was around Rachel, I felt good. And I think I was saying something like, I'm going to stick around and commit myself to you, woman, so you can keep on doing for me what I like. And I believe that she may have been saying something similar. She felt pretty good around me because of my attention. And I think she was saying something like, I'm not sure if I've always valued myself as a, as a woman the way that I like. I'm not sure if I always feel as good about me the way I want to feel. But around you, you're the young man that's made me feel best about me as a young woman, and I'm going to hitch up to you, keep up the good work. I wonder if that should not be described as a tick-on-a-dog relationship. Y'all know what a tick is? 
looks around to sink whatever it has into the flesh of its host and pulls into itself. Can you see if that's true, that the root problem in most marriages is very simple? You have two ticks and no dog. to look deeply into our lives and ask God, what are we doing this for? We're okay on the surface. How are we beneath the surface where our motivations count? A year ago, I was counseling with a couple. It was the first session, marriage case. A couple came in and sat down in front of me. This was a demonstration counseling hour. I was doing it in front of a class. I do that, by the way. Your names have all been put into a hat. <clears throat> and... Um, this couple was sitting in front of me, and uh, he was a man who was very stiff and distant and unemotional and cold. And he was talking during the first part of our session about the fact that his wife was complaining of the lack of passion and his, his soul toward her. And um, he was talking about his parents and the visit that they had just had recently in their home for whatever reason, in the middle of this counseling hour, his first time to talk to a counselor, he, he began to weep. And as he was weeping over the fact that his parents had left home, had, had left uh, his, their, their visit to go back to their home, and he realized how badly he missed them, how much he loved them, how much he wanted to express things that never were expressed between them, how cold their relationship was, how he wanted it to be warmer, he just began to fall apart and weep in, this, in the first 20 minutes of our first counseling hour. And his wife, very quickly, as he began to weep, reached over and touched him on the arm. Now, is that a good thing to do? Well, sure, most times it is to show support. I've wept and Rachel has touched me and I appreciate it means a lot, but it depends on the motivation. And as I watched her touch him, something inside of me felt very uncomfortable, and I said to him as he was weeping, tell me how you feel when your wife just touched you. His response was, look at me. Not in blank consternation. He knew what I was talking about. I said, how did you feel? He said, I felt annoyed. I turned to her and I said, why did you touch him? She said, to show support. Did you feel supported? No, I felt condescended to that became our topic for the next two or three sessions. You know what was going on? Here was a woman who had felt so shut out by this man's lack of passion. Here was a woman who had felt so untouched as a woman by this man's lack of meaningful movement toward her, she had not ever seen him cry in the ten years of their marriage, and now after ten years he cried, and her response was, I want more of this! I'm going to encourage this and get this man to open up and to touch my soul, the dickens with him. I want something out of this guy. I'm going to touch him and look sweet and wonderful and get him to come through for me. That became exposed until their mutual self-centeredness became identified as the crucial problem in their marriage. What does it mean to walk with God? Let's get down to the motivations of our lives. Enoch walked with God. You can't walk with him unless you agree on his purposes. What are his purposes? He's going to glorify himself. He's going to make himself known. He wants to make known the character that is his to make known. He wants to make known his goodness. And if I'm to walk with him, then I must live my life for the supreme purpose of making known the kind of God he is in all of my interactions. Is that my motivation? The answer, of course not. Not all the time. That's why I'm so grateful for ongoing forgiveness. But that must be where I aim. Enoch walked with God. Anyone who comes to God must wrestle with the issues of the motivation to learn what it means to walk with him. second thing we learned about Enoch is back in Hebrews 11. We've already read it. 
Turn to it if you like, but you've already read the passage with me. We were told that Enoch pleased God. Enoch first walked with God. Secondly, Enoch pleased God. What do you suppose that's all about? How do we please God? Look at a very interesting passage in the same chapter. Verse 13, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They didn't receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. These people that the writer is talking about admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. This world is not my home. Steve said last night many times, we're not yet home. People who say such things show that they're looking for a country of their own for home. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Lewis said somewhere that God never allows us to mistake any of our resting places here for home. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Who is God not ashamed of? Who is God not ashamed of when it comes to being identified as I'm their God. I'm his God. I'm her God. Who is God not ashamed of? Answer, the person who basically sings very deeply, this world is not my home. My confidence, God, is in you. And the home, the, 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 the mansion that you're building for me somewhere, my trust is in you. My heart is not troubled because I believe you have gone away to prepare a place for me. And whatever happens in this world, I demand nothing. I rejoice in the good things. I survive the bad things. But I please you by claiming nothing here, which frees me then to do good. Look over at chapter 13. Verse 14, For here we do not have an enduring city, but we're looking for the city that is to come. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess His name. Don't forget to do good, to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. God is pleased. But people who require nothing for themselves here in terms of a demand that says, I'm going to have a wife who responds to me the way I want. I'm going to have kids that honor me because they've gone into the profession I want. I'm going to have the job that I want. I'm going to have people treat me the way I want. I'm going to make this home work. God says, no, I'm ashamed to be called your God. But I'm not ashamed to be called the God of those who demand nothing. A number of years ago, a fellow came to see me in my private practice as a counselor. I didn't know him. His name was on the calendar. Went out to meet him, and, hi, I'm Larry, you're so-and-so, good to meet you, come on back. Went back to my office, and we sat down, and I began the session as I begin every session. How can I help you? That's how I start. It's the only sentence I'm sure of when I counsel. After that, it's random confusion, but I know how to begin. I said, how can I help you? And the fellow said, um, I want to feel better quick. I remember looking at him and saying, you want to you feel better quick. Isn't that drive you crazy how counselors just say back to you what you've said? That kills time. <laughs> and he said, yeah, I want to feel better quick. What's your advice? And I said, well, I think I'd get a case of your favorite alcoholic beverage, some cooperatively immoral women go to the Bahamas for a month. He looked at me and he said, are you a Christian? I said, why do you ask? 
said, uh, your advice doesn't sound very Christian to me. And my response was this, the problem is not with my advice, it's with your question. If you demand to feel better quick, I don't always recommend Jesus. If you want to feel better quick, Satan has the trump card. There are pleasures in sin. Just don't finish the verse and it's okay. For a season. It's foolish to go Satan's way. But if my commitment is, I'm going to get out of pain, and I'm going to get out of pain now. Pornography works better than Bible study. If your commitment is, Lord, there's no life in sin. There's no life in pornography. There's no life in immorality. There's no life in drugs. There's no life in all the things the devil wants me to do. But God, there's life in you, and I'm going to pursue you. And as I move toward you, not knowing how to do it very well, but God, I'm going to find you somehow, because you told me you want to be found. Jeremiah 29 says, I will be found by you. God, I'm going to claim that. I'm going to believe that. I'm going to move toward you until I find you. And God, along the way, even when it gets tough, I'm going to believe that you're good. Oswald Chambers said, the root of all sin is the suspicion that God is not good. Enoch pleased God. He didn't demand to feel better quick. His eyes were on a heavenly country. He pleased God, and we know that to please God, there needs to be the attitude of heart which says, this world really is not my home, and if I hurt, that's inevitable. Do we understand that all of us were built with longings for what is not now available in full measure. That's why Paul in Romans 8 said we groan. Just like the whole creation groans, we who have the first fruits, we groan. I have a little inkling because of the Spirit of God within me as to what real love is all about. I don't have a single relationship where there's perfect love. I've got Great parents, wonderful wife, super kids, a lot of good friends. And I long for more. Because I wasn't built for what is now available. I was built for perfection. It's not here. And if I demand to feel better quick, I will compromise myself. Folks, to understand that we can work to feel better quick, not just by the obvious sins of pornography and those kind of things that I presume most of us are not involved in, but we can work to feel better quick by becoming stuffy religious people denying what's happening inside and going through Christian rituals so any sense of reality is killed within us. We numb our longings. We kill the pain. We pretend it isn't there. You don't find God that way. Enoch walked with God, and he pleased God, and lastly, and we'll stop, look at the book of Jude. The last thing we know about Enoch is in the book of Jude. I'm going to say this briefly, and the second half of this message will come tonight. But let me briefly make the third point about Jude. First, we know he walked with God. That's in Genesis 5. Secondly, we know he pleased God. That's in Hebrews 11. And now we know from the book of Jude that Enoch treated sin as a greater problem than pain. Fourth verse, the book of Jude one chapter book, certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago by Enoch, we'll see in just a moment, have secretly slipped in among you. They're godless men. What's a godless man? Someone who changes the grace of our God into a license 
for immorality. Shall we sin that grace may abound? Sure. How does that find modern translation in our world today? I think it finds modern translation in our world today by those who are regarding pain within the soul as a more significant problem than sin within the soul. Jude in verse 14 talks about Enoch and he records a sermon that Enoch gave, obviously generations earlier. He makes it clear who the Enoch is he's talking about. There are several Enochs in the Bible. He's talking about the one we're talking about, the one in Genesis, the seventh from Adam. And he says that Enoch prophesied about these people who basically didn't take sin very seriously. Their concern was, I'm going to find relief for my pain now. And if that requires immorality, if that requires hypocritical religion, if that requires denial and pretense, then that's what I'm going to do. And I'm going to assume that God's grace is committed more than anything else to helping me feel good now as opposed to making me like Jesus. Enoch prophesied about these men and he said this, see, verse 14, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all the ungodly of all the ungodly acts they've done in the ungodly way and of all the harsh words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. What's a harsh word against God? Corinthians tells us, Philippians tells us as well, we're not to grumble. Philippians says, neither grumble nor complain. Corinthians says that the Jews grumbled and God destroyed numbers of them to teach us not to grumble. We're told in Numbers chapter 14 that when the Jews were concerned about the enemy in the promised land, that they grumbled and they spoke harsh words against God. Basically, they were saying that we don't trust you. We don't believe you're good enough to handle our lives, so we're going to take over responsibility for it ourselves heard Charles Ryrie preach uh, two weeks ago. Many of you know Charles Ryrie, the Ryrie Study Bible. He told me that he had a woman come to him and say to him, uh, Dr. Ryrie, I really appreciate your study Bible. It's just wonderful. I'm really encouraged by it. It's been very, very helpful in my life. And I ask you one question. Is it available without all those notes? <laughs> Took away some of the encouragement, I think, that he felt. But he said this two weeks ago from the pulpit. He said that he's not given to speaking prophetically in terms of commenting on the Christian scene in America. That's not the thing he feels called to do. But he said, you know, more people, more young people particularly, was the way he put it, seem to be practicing negotiation as opposed to trust. God, I will if. God, I'll do this if. I'll commit myself in the right kind of parent, and here's what I expect in return. God, I'll negotiate with you. Is that saying a harsh word against God? Is that grumbling against Him? Is that saying, God, I'm not sure if you're good enough for me to absolutely trust. You seem fairly good here and there. Now, I'll do this, and I expect that to obligate you. No, you do that. Because you see, God, my real priority is the fact that I hurt. Do you know what happened to me when I was a kid, God? Do you know what it was like being 10 years old and being hated by all the kids in this class because I was ugly? Do you know what it was like when my uncle molested me, God? Do you know what it was like four years of living with that man who came to my home every week and touched me in those horrible ways? God, do you know the pain of an adult survivor of sexual abuse? Don't you realize that's my priority? Get over that. Biblical counseling always treats sin as a higher priority than pain. 
Let me tell you one story and I'll close. Council with a young missionary couple starting last January, still working with them off and on now. When she was about four years old, she has a vague memory of a, to her, an older woman, likely an older teenage girl, who took her downstairs to a basement. She can't recall where the house was, where there were six guys that for an hour sexually and horribly involved themselves with this little girl. Is that a problem? Of course it is. Is it horrible? Yes. Does it leave scars? Yes. Are there wounds that need to be healed? Yes. Is there a worse problem than wounds? Yes. To make a long story very short, in the course of our working together as she made known this story and trembled, shook as she told me about the story, just began to shake violently telling me about what happened so many years ago when she was a maybe a three-year-old girl, I think. I noticed as we interacted together with she and her husband, the marriage was not doing well. I noticed that every time he moved toward her with any level of affection at all, that she tensed up and wouldn't look at him. And I commented on that, and I said, why do you do that? little exploration revealed that what she was saying was, I'm terrified to face the possibility that he's coming to me without the purity my soul requires. I don't want to see self-centered lust in his eyes when he's moving toward me to kiss me. Or when he's saying tender romantic things about his love for me. I don't want to take the risk that maybe he's not saying things that are true. I don't want to be hurt again like I was hurt again. What's the central issue in her life? Pain that needs to be healed or doubt that God is good? I said to her, again I'm condensing many sessions into a few moments. I said I want you to... Next time your husband speaks romantically to you, next time he moves towards you to kiss you, I want you to look at him. Your eyes open. She sat up and stiffened and she said, you don't know what you're asking. If God is good, we can give up our attempts to preserve our souls. And we can occupy with a higher purpose of giving our souls to other people. As that young woman began to move in the direction of giving up her self-protection, her self-centered self-protection, you know what happened next? I'd love to say it was the delightful experience of the wonder of God's presence, but it wasn't. She became actively suicidal. I talked about a suicide one month ago. And she was suicidal because as she was giving up her self-protection, she said, now that I'm giving that up, I'm terrified. Don't you understand? If he's not good, I can't make it. Well, that's true for all of us. And now she knows it. And I said, take a risk. Is he good? Look at the cross. And now commit yourself to never taking your life and keeping your eyes open when you kiss your husband. There's been movement in that girl's soul. She's heading back to the mission field now. She's on deputation. And she's worshiping the Lord in a way that she hasn't before. Enoch walked with God. He pleased God. And he treated sin, doubting the goodness of God, lacking confidence in his character, assuming responsibility for taking care of our own lives. is a far more serious problem than his pain. I want to leave you with this question, and we'll look at it tonight. Why do you suppose that in the book of Jude, the writer was very careful to identify Enoch as seventh from Adam? 
I want to suggest there's more to that than just the purpose of identifying the Enoch about whom he's speaking. My theme for the week, how do we find God so that he truly is enough to survive whatever comes our way? The death of a brother, difficulties with a wife in a hotel room and her hair is not looking so good, and everything in between. How do we find God well enough to keep going with meaning and joy? Father, you delight to be found. Help us to find you in newer ways this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. To subscribe, visit LargerStory.com.